Welcome to the Formed in the Word podcast, a production of the Augustan Institute. Your hosts, Dr. Jim Prothro and Dr. Israel McGrew, will review the lectionary readings for this Sunday's Mass, explain their context, and help you to appreciate the Church's wisdom in selecting them. Welcome to second week of Advent, Formed in the Word, our weekly commentary on the lectionary uh, as we progress through Advent and hope and joyful expectation for the coming of our Lord um, in preparation both for Christmas but primarily for His second coming. Um, today we'll be looking at the readings, of course. Um, I'm joined, as usual, by Jim, the New Testament exegete. Um, yeah, so we'll just take our readings one by one in sequence this week and hopefully integrate them to help priests with their homily prep, as well as interested, engaged lay people who just want to be formed by the Word a little more. Excellent. You want to start us with a prayer? Yeah, let's do. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We give you thanks, Lord, that you are a God who speaks to us, a God who speaks to correct us, to guide us, and to show us who you are uh, and call us to salvation in you. We pray that you would do that through your Word today and that you would guide uh, myself and Israel as we uh, speak and speak for all of our audience. Uh, and we pray also for all of our audience members uh, in their own devotions uh, and for those who will use this uh, for uh, leading others, whether in uh, preaching or in uh, their home uh, or in their parishes. Uh, we pray that you would bless them and all of us in the study of your word through Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Isaiah 11. Uh, this is very famous and, of course, very beautiful passage. Um, the image is, you know, this stump that's been cut off and a little sucker shoot that sp sprigs out of it. Um, and so it's an image of hope and it's an image of, you know, perduring life. But it also presupposes a lot of destruction. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, you can't, you, you, can't, you can't have the nice, beautiful little sprig coming out of the stump. Unless somebody's cut without the whole a stump, thing down, right? yeah. that indicates a <laughs> significant tree used to be there and no longer is. Um, and of course, this is a kind of a, his, a prophetic trope, right? The people have been bad, they've been punished and judged, and there's a remnant that God has left in His mercy, and that God has left in order to continue His work of salvation through history. So this is the cycle that we get from the prophets, and in this. Um, kind of historical context, Isaiah is, of course, addressing um, the Assyrian crisis with Ahaz and Hezekiah, and he's foretelling that Judah is largely going to be destroyed, but that there will become, there will come a shoot from the stump of Jesse, of course, David's father. Mm -hmm. And so a Davidic king is going to um, sprout out of what appears to be utter desolation and destruction. Um, and so it really speaks to God's commitment to his people mm. um, through the Davidic covenant and God's ability to work his salvation um, despite the most terrible imaginable, mm. imaginable circumstances. Um, and so it's both destruction and renewal and it attests God's severity Mm -hmm. um, but also very much God's commitment to his people in that context. Um, 
Yeah, and and in a way, one of the things that strikes me about the reading for uh, from Isaiah one through ten or eleven one through ten here is um, uh, is 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 how is how many things match up, right? So, um, uh, as as you were telling everybody, the uh, uh, the the stump is there because there's going to be destruction, and the destruction isn't just sort of like, well, this is going to happen, get ready for it, but the destruction is a penalty on Israel's sin. Yeah. Um, so if you go back to Isaiah chapter one, you you can see a lot of this, right? The Lord uh, through the prophet tells the people why they're going to be destroyed, uh, not destroyed utterly, but why they're going to be defeated and then sent away by uh, this empire. Uh, why the tree, right, of God's people will be cut, um, and uh, I mean some of the things that He talks about there, right? So the people, the people don't obey God. They don't fear the Lord. They're like stubborn mules, right? They don't listen. They intention. It's not just that they sin, right? It's that they sin, right? And they're throwing off God, or they say, "Now get off my back, God." Um, and and also uh, knowledge and understanding, right? So He says in Isaiah chapter one, "My people go into exile for lack of knowledge, right? They don't know Me, right? Mm-hmm. And when I tell them who I am, when I show up and tell them, they don't listen yeah. right, and they refuse. But now, right, with the renewal, right, there's still the, 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 uh, the well, the obvious evidence of destruction, right? There's only a stump on the tree and yet the renewal is coming, right? So there's the little sprig coming up, right? That's arising from Jesse's line, from David's line. Jesse was David's dad. And then, right, what's he gonna have? He's gonna have a spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel Right to be able to renew people in their knowledge of the Lord, um, as well as in justice, judgment um, uh, uh, that He will bring, and faithfulness. Yeah, and if you, you know, if you look at chapter ten, um, Assyria is the axe that has laid low the kingdom of Judah, and Hezekiah is the king um, in whom Isaiah seems to have a fair amount of proximate hope. Mm. Right, um, and Hezekiah fits some of these things. Right, if you especially if you continue reading the chapter after the week's readings end, um, you see actually some political things that Hezekiah does wind up doing. Um, but of course, Hezekiah himself isn't a perfect king. And the restoration, the kind of theological reformation that he leads is short-lived. Mm-hmm. And so this image of the tree that's been chopped down and the sprig that's going to be the new life um, has kind of enduring significance in Israel's history. So after the Babylonian exile, when you know the Davidic dynasty has been truly cut off entirely, um, the prophet Jeremiah will talk about the branch who is going to uh, restore mm-hmm. the Davidic line in its integrity and its holiness. And 150 years later, quite a while later, the prophet Zechariah will also pick up this image to say that the king, the branch is the one who will restore everything. Mm, mm. And so, you know, if we think about this in a historical context, sure, it looks like Hezekiah, um, but Israel's history uh, demonstrates that Hezekiah actually doesn't fulfill mm. the things actually described in this chapter. And so the hope, again, just gets pitched forward as it's like hope deferred. Mm, um, mm. So, so you wouldn't you wouldn't be... Somebody wouldn't be wrong reading this in its historical context to think, oh, this is, this is a passage about hope for Hezekiah or for another sort of human king in Israel's mm-hmm. history. You wouldn't be wrong to think that reading it in its context at first, but you would be wrong to keep thinking that 
after Hezekiah died and it turned out it didn't work all that well, right? Or, or, or the next king. And one of the questions I have for you too is... I guess I, I would put yeah. it this way. I'll put that, it, yeah. So like in verse 14, he's swooping down on Philistines. That's not something Jesus ever does, right? Jesus doesn't mm-hmm. lead a cavalry charge because he's not that kind of king. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the, the verses from our reading, right, they evoke an ideal that Hezekiah doesn't match. Mm-hmm. And so as much as Hezekiah was a good king and did do really good things, right? He uh, led a he led the Passover and actually incorporated some of the northern refugees. Um, fantastic, right? mm-hmm. um, part of God's providence and working in history. Um, but as with all history, and the the Old Testament, it just seems deliberately crafted to communicate this throughout their historical books. They're always drawing attention to the fact that. Israel's human kings can't fulfill mm. Israel's royal ideology, mm. right? Mm. Um, Israel's desire, Israel's longing, Israel's recognition that we need a king to reign over us, and ultimately God is the only king. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet we do have these hopes that God will instantiate his reign through a human king. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They just all fall short of that. Yeah, that's right. Well, and, and particularly with... Uh, uh, I mean, a lot of it seems to me comes down to what you see going on in um, verses six and following, right? So a lot of this is really beautiful imagery, but it can be difficult to to figure out how all of the images and the kind of metaphors Mm -hmm. would work out with the human king or or what they're referring to uh, spiritually, right? The wolf will lie down with the land, right? There's going to be a child leading them. The calf and the lion will just sort of sit and hang out together and the, you know, little baby— a toddler, right? A nursing child will 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 play over the den of a cobra, yeah. Um, and nobody will get hurt. Right? Yeah, so, so this is clearly a return to Eden. Yeah, right? this so is a this restoration is, this is of more cosmic than just, harmony. Yeah, more than just political harmony yeah. in this particular bit of the geopolitical sphere. This is cosmic. Yeah. So if you were to read this in reference to Hezekiah, you'd have to mm-hmm. say that this is metaphor, uh-huh. right? Um, some kind of hyperbolic way of saying that this king's reign will have cosmic significance and restore harmony, mm-hmm. um, which is what it talks about in the latter half of the chapter, right? It's actually hoping that Ephraim and Judah are going to be reconciled mm-hmm. in Hezekiah's mm-hmm. reign, which is done partially, um, but only partially, mm-hmm. right? Because some of the refugees join, but most of them are, in fact, have been carried away in exile. And so, again, this is part of, you know, I suppose you could describe it as a poetic metaphor, um, but it evokes a more essential longing, right? Mm-hmm. It makes you want this to be literally true. If, um, and so I suppose it, it makes us long for the eschaton. Right? Yeah, the last day. When all yeah. chaos has actually been um, destroyed and where they, in fact, will not hurt or harm on my mountain. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, and um, I mean, certainly with the context, both biblically and then and then liturgically, we're thinking about Advent, Mm-hmm. Um, right, you're you're pointing back to to Eden, right, and that helps us also think about both the kind of spiritual realities that are going on in the exile and the renewal, and then the same ones that will be proclaimed in the gospel, right, of the the, the problem of sin and the need for it to be reversed by the one who brings the Spirit of the Lord, who can actually renew us, right? Because if the if if in the Garden of Eden, right, the first sin is presented to us original, the, the original sin that gives us original sin is presented to us as something that, that brings not only guilt, but also breaks relationships between 
humans and God, mm-hmm. right? Adam runs away to hide, right? Hiding from God. He starts blaming his wife, right? God comes down and says, Who, did you eat from the tree? And Adam's like, she made me do it, right? And now everybody's in competition with each other and defensive, right? We talk about, right, inclinations that we have that are selfish with original sin, right? Um, uh, and then, of course, also death, right? And that's kind of what Israel, spiritually at least, is experiencing, right? They, mm-hmm. They've, 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 uh, given into sin, right? They're breaking their relationship with God, uh, reverting to worshiping idols. There's fighting and, and geopolitically and with yeah. them. Yeah. So the breakdown relationships between so Adam and Eve, right? Cain and Abel and between people. Mm. And as um, kind of as framed in Israel's historical political experience mm-hmm. of Israel and uh, of Judah and Ephraim um, being that civil war or, you know, this, this schism, this... Mm-hmm. Um, kind of fratricide, if you will. And also, um, he's looking for a restoration of Assyria and Egypt even being incorporated mm. into this mm. kind of reintegration, into this peaceful harmony that's going to come mm. about. Oh, that's beautiful. And and in the in the lectionary, this matches nicely with the reading from Psalm 72, which, which is uh, about right, Solomon, Right? And yeah. the wisdom and the justice that are needed to govern all of God's people. And of course, Solomon asks for wisdom to mm-hmm. be able to govern and guide God's people. But Solomon also proves, yeah. according to the book of Kings, to be uh, something un- of a unable fool. to. Yeah, yeah, right? unable he to. He abandons this the fear of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And if the fear of the Lord is actually the beginning of wisdom, you can't do that with about, without abandoning wisdom. Mm-hmm. And Solomon and Hezekiah, in a way, are the two high watermarks, I would say, mm. of the Davidic sons, right? Um, Solomon, you know, David, he's a good guy, devoted to the Lord, fears the Lord, man after God's heart. Um, but he's also a man of bloodshed, mm. which is why he doesn't get to build the temple in First Chronicles. Um, and so, whereas David is a man of bloodshed, Solomon's name means peace. Right? Solomon is the king of peace who rules not through warfare or military mm-hmm. prowess but through wisdom and this in a way I mean Solomon um, images who God is in a way that David simply doesn't mm-hmm. um, he commits apostasy and it's a big problem um, but in his early career he again evokes these ideals mm-hmm. right? he's the wise king the king who rules to wisdom who rules in peace he's the son of David he's the Lord's anointed um, he's all of these things and uh, Psalm 72 is the end of kind of the Davidic Psalter. Mm. In the sense that books one and books two, books one and two are both so focused on David and it's kind of bracketed actually with Psalm 2, mm. which is about the Lord on, and the anointed. And Psalm 72, where we have the end, the prayers of the David son of Jesse are ended um, because Solomon has now been enthroned. Um, and so by his position in the Psalter, and by all the hope and glory um, associated with Solomon's becoming king, it really articulates this high point of Israel's um, political history and of their hopes for God's reign to be instantiated through a human, mm. right? Through mm. a king, through a son of David. Um, but like Hezekiah, but even worse because it involves idolatry and apostasy, mm. uh, Solomon fails to fulfill these. No, that's right. That's right. 
Um, and that that sets up the the those two readings set up for us both the, the sort of the vision and the problem in that way, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, of God's restoration of the fall into sin, um, and particularly of His people, um, but then the hope that there will be somebody who right is both a obedient, submissive Davidic king, and also one who will have all of the power to be able to unite all of the peoples. Yeah, um, because these aren't just understood as descriptions. These are understood yeah. as prophecies. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. even though they might have sort of described Hezekiah at the time, um, it's still understood as a prophecy, and it has literally not been fulfilled. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that, that in a way, kind of brings us, we, we could, at this point, jumping to the New Testament readings, we could jump either to Romans or to the Gospel, but it might be easier to jump uh, now to the second, uh, second reading, um, which is from Paul's epistle to the Romans, and that's particularly verses 4 through 9. Um, it, it starts off kind of in, in the middle of things uh, here. So the, the first Sunday of Advent, we read from Romans 13 uh, about putting off the works of darkness and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, uh, so doing uh, penance and self-denial so that we can then be conformed to Christ's image, particularly in love. Um, and we saw that the love part was kind of cut out in the lectionary, right, to focus us on the bit about self-denial, but the context was important. Same, same thing happens here. We're a little bit later in Romans now, in Romans chapter 15, and we start with verse 4 that starts off with 4, which means <laughs> here's the reason for what I just said, <laughs> but, we're gonna, we, but we've skipped off the first couple of uh, verses. So it's, it's, it's good to step back into uh, the whole chapter, uh, even if your own devotions— uh, with the church, or your preaching is just going to focus on the particular words. It's nice to 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 look at the context to understand it. Uh, so in verse four, he says, "For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the consolation or encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope." Uh, but that comes as an explanation for Paul uh, talking about problems that are going on that he knows are going on in the Roman church, even though he's never visited Rome himself. Um, between uh, Jews, Gentiles, people of different backgrounds, people who are freshly converted pagans in the church, and then people who earlier were already maybe uh, worshiping the God of Israel or just were Jews worshiping the God of Israel um, uh, from all different kind of backgrounds. Um, And there's some that people are labeling strong and then others are labeling weak. So Presumably, the strong people were calling themselves strong. <laughs> and the strong people were looking at the people who were a little bit more, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, liturgically conscious or uh, uh, nervous about uh, uh, impurity or impiety. Uh, and so they wouldn't drink any wine because it might have been sacrificed to a god. In fact, most wine that you could get, unless you crushed it yourself, uh, was already was 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 made sort of in the honor of some Roman god, right? A wine god. Uh, uh, meat was usually bought at temples, right? You wouldn't you didn't have you didn't have like independent restaurants to go to, right? Uh, like let's hey, here's little Roma or something like that. You don't have that. What you had were barbecues and butcher shops that were associated with or right next to and at pagan temples most of the time. So unless somebody was rich and they had their own flocks, they could slaughter them themselves, anything that you're going to get is going to be tainted with idolatry. 
Um, and some people, kind of like Daniel in the beginning of the book of Daniel, were like, no, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to flirt with that. And some people said, well, it, there's no such thing as a real, you know, god of wine or whatever. It's just wine. I'm not eating it in worship to this thing. And depending on uh, what situation Paul is dealing with, uh, he gives consistent but differing advice. Yeah, it right? makes a difference if you're eating at home or if you're going to the idol feast itself. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. So in 1 Corinthians, he says, don't go to those temples. But if you're at home or if you're at the marketplace and you don't know whether it's been sacrificed to a god or not, he says, you know, don't ask and then you don't know. So you can just eat it. Don't worry. Your conscience shouldn't be bothered. But if somebody makes a point to say like, oh, this is idol food, this is idol wine, then you should say no, right? Because they're making a point that it's about the idol. And so if you drink it, it looks like you're being complicit with it. Mm -hmm. But if nobody's, if nobody cares, right, um, then Paul says, then it's not, it's not an issue, right? Because it's not real, right? It's not a, a, a demon inside the stake, right? So it has to do with what you're doing. But people are then sort of despising each other for this. And so he's calling them to peace, uh, mm -hmm. which is a long preface for that. But yeah, sorry. yeah, I was just going to ask, um, yeah. so on what axes is Paul uh, trying to establish peace? We have apparently, so peace between the strong and the weak. Mm -hmm. And then we also turn to talking about the Gentiles in the next few verses, right? Nine through 12. That's right. So we, we, we move from, right, these different kinds of scruples, right, and different kind of perspectives from different people of different backgrounds uh, where he's calling them all to peace and he's calling the strong not to look down on the weak, right, and not to think, oh, you idiots, you're so weak. But also he doesn't want the weak to judge the strong and be like, oh, you guys don't know it, but you're actually all ministers of Satan because of the things that you eat, right, or because of the things, you know, or the songs that you sing or the whatever, right, we might— <laughs> Um, transfer it, um, right? He he wants right, he wants everybody to have a piety and be pious, um, uh, but he doesn't want it to divide evenly along these lines. But so he calls everybody to unity, and that's where he's going to bring in the kingship of Christ, right? Who unites all Jew and Gentile, doing exactly what uh, Isaiah two. Uh, from the first week in Advent's uh, Old Testament reading and also Isaiah 11, right? Because Christ brings and restores peace. Um, do right? you see the issue of circumcision also in this strength and weakness? Uh, I'm just looking at verse 8. Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Yeah, that's right. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That's right. So circumcision could be one of these things. However, Paul is pretty adamant that Gentiles shouldn't be circumcised. Or they shouldn't be required to be or the, circumcised. Uh, he tells them not to do it, or at least if somebody tells them that they have to right. not to do it. Yeah. We don't have any evidence of him sort of talking about like, what if you live in a world wh where most Christians are not Jewish and they're getting circumcised for mm -hmm. health reasons, right? He, he, that, that's, right. that's never no. on the table. No, but the, the main thing, though, <laughs> is uh, what how Gentiles are being incorporated into this covenant. Uh, that's right. That's right. And so the the movement in 14 and 15 uh, about peace, right, and kind of uh, uh, peace given these different sensibilities um, is for everybody to, to be able to live with one another. And the same thing happens with the circumcised and the uncircumcised, mm -hmm. right, um, is that if you already are, then that's fine. Um, but he says in 1 Corinthians 7, right, if you're not circumcised, then don't get it, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and that one's actually not in a context where it's mm -hmm. required. He just says, don't. Um, Paul's vision is, 
uh, well, in, in uh, Christ's vision, right, what he means to bring about is what we see in Revelation, right, with everybody of all tribes, nations, and tongues worshiping him. Mm-hmm. So you can't erase your tribe right. or your tongue right, or your nationality, and yet you do have to erase anything that's irreligious mm-hmm. because your religion has to be Christ only. Yeah. You can't but, stop being a, a goyim right. if the goyim are, in fact, all to stream towards the temple. Right, exactly. Right. Jesus doesn't have a worldwide community if everybody gets sort of amalgamated right, mm-hmm. to the same thing. Um, but he, he comes back to all of these uh, prophecies um, and, and shows the way in which Christ, in his self-giving, uh, is a, a king who unites. Right. So he says, Christ became a servant, a minister. He uses the word deacon here. Right? Uh, became a servant to the circumcision circumcised, to show God's truthfulness and to confirm the promises that were given to the patriarchs and so that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So very much in uh, Romans 15, 8 to 9, like Simeon's song, right? Your word has been fulfilled. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of every people, a light to reveal you to the nations, right? To all of the Gentiles, all the non-Jews, and also to bring glory to your people, Israel. Right? Yeah. So Christ has come to confirm the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to David, right? And by doing so, also to bring the Gentiles into mm-hmm. relationship with God. And so then he quotes various texts from the prophets, right, saying, I will praise you among the nations, among the Gentiles, right? Um, and this is part of the hope and the encouragement uh, that the scriptures give us back in verse four, right? That through endurance and the encouragement, the consolation of the scriptures, we might have hope, right? And mm-hmm. so we're able, nourished by the scriptures to have faith, to have hope and an ongoing hope that brings us to uh, unite each other instead of with fear to fight each other yeah, and run away. A, a peaceful reckoning. Reconciliation. A peaceful reconciliation. And he quotes uh, four verses, four different passages to drive the point home. And uh, it's kind of unfortunate, actually, that the reading stopped where it did because 15 verse 12 is a quotation of Isaiah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the, you could get the last verse in Isaiah twice um, to drive the point home again. That's right. But if we get into that, we'll miss the gospel reading and run out of time. <laughs> um, so uh, the gospel reading for this week um, ties so much of this together um, and also with an explicit call to us through what John the Baptist says to the Pharisees uh, to repent uh, in preparation for the coming of the Lord, right? Jesus is the one who uh, fulfills the prophecies. Jesus is the one who re- reverses and undoes the power of sin uh, and death in the world, right? Yeah. He's the one who will make the lion lie down with the so lamb. as the fall, right, the rebellion against God introduces chaos into mm-hmm. the cosmos such that every peace is lost on every plane mm-hmm. between us and God, between us and our spouses and brothers, and, and between us animals, between us and the land. Um, there is no peace without repentance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And this is part of why justice and peace go together even in Isaiah 11, right? He's going to come with justice and judge between the nations, and he'll make the lion lie down with the lamb. And the same thing here in John the Baptist's preaching. So he is the one foretold by Isaiah shouting out in the wilderness saying, get ready, he's coming, right? Prepare his way, uh, make the Lord's path straight, right? Make his path straight to you. Um, uh, And uh, the the image is kind of an external one, right? That you're going to sort of set out the road so that he can come to you. 
but the road spiritually, right, by which he can come to us is humility and repentance, right? Because that's the disposition that receives God's mercy um, and is able to actually hear him and change when he confronts us. And so uh, he's calling everybody to confess their sins, to come to his baptism of repentance. Um, and he sees Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. Uh, and they're like, most of them seem to be kind of coming to like, check it out or like, check out what, what's it, what's this, what's the crazy guy doing with the camel hair coat, right? What's going on? Let's put a, you know, let's figure this out. Uh, but when he sees them coming, he says, hey, what's up, baby snakes? Right? <laughs> you, you brood of vipers, right? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, right? You guys aren't afraid of the wrath to come. You think you've got it all set. And he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, right? Bear fruit that befits repentance, right? So that our uh, minds and our lives both are turned from sin, from our selfish inclinations toward God to receive his love, to receive his rebukes, and, of course, to receive his salvation. Right? He says, don't presume. Don't presume to say to yourselves, well, we're Abraham's kids. God can't get that mad at us. Did you read the Isaiah 1? Yeah. Right? Did you read any of the stuff back here? Right? In Amos chapter uh, 3, the Lord says uh, through the prophet, you alone have I known among all the nations of the earth, and therefore I will punish you for your sins. Right? And First Peter uh, says judgment will begin with the house of God, right? It starts with us, starts with me. And if we have a different attitude that like, well, I'm good, it should start with somebody else, then we're going to be in trouble, right? Um, and so his call for uh, anyone with a hard heart is also a call for us who hopefully in the church and reading his word uh, are coming to him with humility and ready to hear um, that the call for us is to actually right, repent and let our minds and our lives be turned toward him because that's the disposition that actually makes that road, that way of the Lord straight uh, into our hearts as we prepare for his coming into the world. Um, uh, and of course, there's also a, a, a great connection with the Isaiah reading if you wanted to sort of develop a theme too about the cutting. Mm -hmm. um, because in Isaiah, right, we had the cutting down of the tree, but the little, the little sprig, sprig was coming. comes back. Yeah, yeah for new life. Um, and there's always hope, right, when God is working to cut down and build up. But when the Lord Jesus returns and it's the end, then it's the end, right? Mm. But there's a day when the time for repentance runs out. And this one just says, right, when he shows up, he's going to have an axe in his hand and he's going to cut down the trees that don't bear fruit with repentance and then he'll just burn it. Right? When, time, when time is up uh, at the Lord's return in the day of judgment, this also up. has something to say with how he engages in history too, right? Mm. Um, both for the individual judgment, but also just tracking with how God treats the nations in history. Mm -hmm. You're saying, mm -hmm. you think about the book of Revelation and the warnings to the various cities. Mm -hmm. right? No, that's right. That's right. How does, oh. how does the Isaiah passage kind of uh, complicate um, this axe to the tree, axe to the root of the trees? What do you see in here? I guess I'm thinking particularly about how, you know, in the judgment, but also in mercy, and like you're saying, kind of first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, um, but also that Isaiah passage 
in the, you know, after the, the judgment of Jerusalem and looking for this new ideal Davidic king who's going to come about and restore Jerusalem, but also with the integration of the Gentiles. Mm. And so what we have here is we have, you know, baptism being extended first for Jews, right? And with that comes the kind of prophetic warning um, of coming judgment as, but also, you know, how to get saved. Um, but, you know, in the same baptism, which is this kind of sign of judgment, right? It's a confession. Right? You're entering into a place of death. Mm. You're acknowledging mm. your sinfulness. Um, and that, that will also become the means by which the Gentiles become integrated into this new Davidic reign. That's right. Well, we're always we're we're always baptized into the hope of life with Jesus and the reality of life with Jesus, but it's through the death, right? Mm-hmm. And because he himself went through death and into glory, um, uh, and so we follow the same the same pattern, yeah. um, both in our life now and then to come. On the one hand, which is kind of easy, but then also in uh, uh, in our own repentance, yeah. right? um, and that that's extended, as you say. Um, to all people, right? That's a call that doesn't fixate on a single nation or a single group. That's a call to all people mm-hmm. uh, to turn and be ready to receive the word of God and his grace, which allows us and calls us and helps us and moves us to repentance um, to receive that. So, yeah. um, Well, that's that's going to take us up for time now. Um, there's a, a thousand other things that we could, we could do and talk about. Um, uh, but perhaps we could end with a Gloria. We've had a great time with you on Formed in the Word, and we'll see you back for next week when we'll hit the third Sunday of Advent and the readings for that week. Uh, you want to close okay. us out with a Gloria? Yeah. Glory to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. This has been a Formed in the Word podcast, a production of the Augustan Institute. For more inspiring and informative content like this, please visit formed.org.